You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I want to tell you a story about a, a couple um, that impacted me when I was young in my marriage. Um, this guy was a friend of mine, a boyhood friend of mine, and he came. We weren't that close. We didn't see a lot of each other, but we... We connected up one summer, and he told me about his marriage, which was less than a year old, and it wasn't going well. And it was sobering for me, and it raised a lot of questions for me. And this morning, as we reflect on Hosea, I may have more questions for you than answers, uh, because love is like that. It's this kind of mystery. And the scriptures say that love is as strong as death. I love that. That's a line of poetry that comes from the Song of Solomon. And yet my friend, whom I'll call Jay, was experiencing the death of love in his marriage. And it's so painful, and, and, and many of us have experienced that or are experiencing that. Many of us have experienced the death of love in our relationship with God. There was a point in our life where we, we not only believed in God, but we loved God. And we loved the idea that God loved us. And there was kind of a divine romance between his heart and our heart. But if we're honest this morning, we have to say, I don't even see a spark there. And so the question is, what happens when love just goes away? And more importantly, how does it come back? This whole experience that Hosea has is, is God's grand bid for love to come back into that relationship between his people, Israel, and their Savior, God. And if you're in that place where you want love to come back, if you want to come back together with someone that you really do want to love or come back together with a God who loves you, then Hosea is your book. And the conversation started to raise questions for me. It kind of went like this. Jay was telling me, you know, um, we had a great wedding and George, you'd seen the pictures. But somewhere along the way, and it didn't take very long, she began to withdraw from me. She began to pull away. And when she started to pull away, I started to come closer because I, I didn't know what else to do. I was so scared. Now, my friend's a follower of Jesus Christ, and he knows that the husband is called uh, to a whole lot in marriage, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I remember him telling me that, and I thought, wow, that's scary. So I, I'm, I'm trying to do that for her, but she won't let me love her. In fact, he said, she has a restraining order on me right now. And I thought, well, there's a lot to this story I don't understand. He said, you know, um, we tried counseling, and, and that didn't work, and she started to move out, and now she won't let me even call her on the phone. And I just got confused about that. Did you ever hurt her? You know, were, were, were you violent? You know, were you abusive? Um, and the, the questions that began to come to my mind is, first of all, how could somebody who, you know, nobody, I don't know, anybody who gets married who, who's really, like, passionate about love. You know, I do premarital pastoral care. Usually people are sitting on the same chair at that point of their marriage. You know, they want, can't get close enough. Uh, <clears throat> and, and that's the way they were, of course, when they got married. But in such a short period of time, how could that affection just kind of drain away? And then him. The way he's pursuing her, it sounded to me like the way God pursues us, and yet it also made me nervous. I thought, is there something hostile in the way that he's trying to force his love, even though he sees it as a really good thing, on her? I began to wonder, do we really know what love is? Is he working with a misconception about love, thinking he's loving her, but she's not experiencing it as love right now. She's saying, you need to take half a step back, bud, right now, because I, I can't take so much of you. And I began to think about this relationship from her perspective. And I thought, gosh, the whole book of Hosea is about a God who's chasing us down 
to love us. Could that be scary? Is it possible that sometimes we just don't want that kind of love in our lives? That we want to keep others and God at an arm's distance? And so these are the kinds of questions that are swirling around for me as a, as a fairly newly married man. And, and they come back as I read this story of Hosea. And so I want to invite you to look at the first three chapters, although our primary text is the first five verses of chapter three. Would you open up Hosea and let's read about what this man learned through a tragic marriage about God's love for us. Uh, Hosea chapter three, verses one through five. If you're grabbing the black book, the Pew Bible, that's um, page 731. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this text aloud together. And as you're flipping, you're flipping to find it, let me just explain. Hosea is the first of the 12 minor prophets. It's uh, the longest of them. And the minor prophets are not unimportant prophets, but they're the shorter writers in the Hebrew canon, uh, the prophetic um, uh, collection. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. The Lord said to me again, Go love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. (laughs) So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a measure of wine. And I said to her, you must remain as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. You shall not have intercourse with a man, nor I with you. For the Israelites shall remain many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. All right. Let's, um, let me just give you a little bit of background. I just want you to picture what it's like to be Hosea. Some of you don't have to think very hard, by the way, because your heart has been broken and you've been betrayed. And you, you get it without me even telling you the story. But um, the first three chapters provide us enough detail to, to sketch his life. We're not sure. There's a lot of controversy about exactly how this works. But the impression that you're, you, you're getting as you read chapters 1 through 3 is this, that Hosea was... Uh, uh, married to a woman named Gomer, who was a woman of ill repute. And they came together and they started a home and they had three children. They named the children. That's chapter one. In chapter two, Hosea writes more about Israel and God than about his relationship, but he writes about Israel and God in terms of this romance, and he describes Israel turning away from God to pursue other lovers. And so We assume that he's continuing to write about his own experience with Gomer, that at some point in their marriage, she turns away to other lovers. She goes back to the street, potentially. She's an adulteress. And you can just imagine how this might have gone. I mean, I want to say that Hosea would never have married a woman of ill repute if it wasn't for love. You know, in ancient traditional cultures, a lot of times there's an arranged marriage, and it's not about love per se. But <laughs> trust me, in traditional cultures, they don't 
put people together with adulteresses and prostitutes, thinking that's going to be a good match. So it really what it works, it must have been like for Hosea was, his parents just said, don't you get anywhere near that woman ever again. And Hosea said, I know I shouldn't. I know this brings our family under great shame in this culture, but I love her. I love her. Something about her smile. Something about the way she could make him laugh. Something about her braids. I don't know what it was. But he loved her and wouldn't let anybody say no to him. And he went after her. And he brought her home. And she broke his heart. This is the woman that sent a chill up his spine. But one day he hears a rumor in the street that, hey, your wife, Gomer, she's, she's getting around. And I'm guessing that guy didn't live very long if he said that. Because this is a man who wants to defend the honor of his wife. So he doesn't believe at first that she was cheating on him. Refuses, but then you know she'll come home late, or or maybe the next day, and she'll say, "Oh, it was a hard day of work, and I was with my sister, and the loom got broken, and we had to work late." And he believes all of that. He believes because he wants to, because he loves her, and he wants her to love him. But with time, the myth is pierced, and she just doesn't come back. She's just gone, 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 gone. And there's Hosea alone. And he does begin to believe that he's been betrayed. And he will occasionally, when he's on the other side of town, see what he thinks is maybe one of her ponytails up an alley, might hear her giggle behind a closed door, and it just destroys him. Then one day, and now we're getting to chapter 3, the part that you read, God comes alongside Hosea somehow, gives him a sense, an audible voice, a dream, I don't know what it is, and, 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 and God says, I want you to go back. To that woman, I want you to go and I want you to love her. She's with another man right now. She's in adultery, but you go love her. And you speak tenderly to him. Those are words that are in chapter 2. Go and speak tenderly to her and woo her back. And let her come back to your house. And um, I want you to sleep with her for a period of time. You need to kind of detox her. And, and you're not doing it for your sake. You're doing it for hers. You're going to see a restoration in your relationship. And you're going to see a transformation in her life. And you're going to find the satisfaction of loving somebody who does not deserve to be loved. Now that's the call, and, um, and it's so hard to even think about it. And this is where I begin to raise these questions. And so I, I want to approach these questions in three ways. If this helps you follow my meanderings, just think about the source of love and the nature of love and the passion of love. Okay? Three things, the source of love, the nature of love, and the passion of love. First, the source. And here's the question. Do we really need another lover? God is telling you this morning that he loves you, and I think the question that you have to ask, if not consciously, is do I really need another lover in my life? Because we stand in relation to God like Gomer stands in relation to Hosea, and Gomer is a person who, like many of us today, go, yeah, of course everybody loves me, right? What's wrong with you if you don't love me? We've offered so, so much affirmation on our kids. The writers tell us these days that it, what's weird is that people, not everybody, if everybody doesn't love me. Of course God loves me, right? What would be wrong with loving me? I'm just lovable, right? And so we say, do I really need anybody else to love me? I and mean, then you think about that for a second. Think about what, what that would mean for Gomer when Hosea says, I, I, I want to take you home because I have love for you that you can't imagine. It, but basically, she's saying, you know what? Great, that's good. But you know what? I already got a man. There's a guy in the back room here. It's a, it's a companion. The text tells me a lover. And um, 
And she could also think of a time when she could walk through that town and know that behind every door there's a man who would love her if she would let him. So she's got lots of lovers, right? This is a seller's market. And, 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 and this is the picture that God wants to give uh, his people, Israel, of their lives. They, they're a people who have gone after other lovers. Now, just a little historical background. In the 8th century, the first half, this is Hosea's day, Israel, the northern tribes, uh, have a, a little bit of breathing space. It's a period of prosperity. And three things go on that Hosea will, will refer to as lovers. One is they, they run after wealth. They have the opportunity to accumulate money, and it's like the middle class, as in our day in some ways, kind of falls out, and you've got the rich and the poor, and it's a season of injustice because people are falling in love with the capacity that they get from their money. And then sex. Um, you'll read, if you read Hosea in your small group, about Baal, and this is a god of fertility, and uh, this is local farming practice in uh, 8th century Cana or Judea. People are, um, are going into cultic prostitution in order to stimulate the fertility of the gods and make their calves more uh, you know, productive and their fields more abundant. Money, sex, and then power. They'll have an opportunity to have increased standing during this relative season of prosperity in the global community, and they will make treaties with other nations. Uh, this will be important because mid-8th uh, century, Assyria is going to be on the ascendancy, and they will need to protect themselves somehow. And rather than trusting in God's protection, they will choose to, to rely, to trust on these foreign treaties. And so God's saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with these uh, things in your life, money, sex, and power, but when they become your lovers, when you depend upon them to meet your essential needs, you will become addicted to that, you will fall in love with them, and you will lose a love that loves you. Because money, sex, and power never love you back, but I will love you back. I have loved you from the beginning. And so we might ask ourselves, do we really need anybody else to love? My life's so full of love. Do I really need God to love me? And the answer is, well, I think it depends on what you want to get out of that love. If you're willing to find yourself at the end of the day like Gomer finds herself ravaged, abused, and destroyed, then any God will do. Andrew Solomon uh, was writing an article on the, in, on the death of, of uh, Robin Williams in The New Yorker, and it's, it caught my eye because it was kind of what I was thinking about. I mean, my heart has been so broken by Robin Williams' death. And the qu- question that Solomon raises is, you know, why in the culture in America are we insisting on asking the question, why did Robin Williams take his life? Because we ought to know by now, we ought to know better in America why people commit suicide. And the reason is depression. That's the, old, that's the reason. It's depression. And he struggled with depression. We don't do very well, by the way, with depression in America. But that's what did Robin Williams in. So, but that answer seems to be kind of too easy or off the mark for us or troubling to us because what we think is a person that has so much of what we long for should just be happy and fulfilled and satisfied. 
And this is what Solomon points out. You know, you and I would love to have the talent and the success and the popularity and the wealth that Robin William has. And it's just somehow scandalous that somebody who has all of those things to say nothing of even some of them to say nothing of all of them wouldn't feel absolutely enthralled with life. And, and this is what God is saying to 8th century Israel. You play this all the way out. These gods will not love you back. Do we need God's love? So the source, the source of our love. Hosea had, Gomer had her source and her lover. Israel had its source in these false gods. And the question I guess I want you to think about here as I move on to the nature is, what are the sources of love in my life? Where am I really looking for love? What am I counting on for my welfare? So let's talk now about the nature of love. And here the question is just, what is love? Really, what is it? Because in, in verse 1, we, we see that the word love is used in two very different ways. Some of you, I, 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 I caught chuckling when we read this. Just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, that's the same word love that we find at the end of the sentence where it says, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. And, and you go, Really? God loves his people, and people love raisin cakes. <laughs> now, I don't know if I told you anything really new there, but what you want to notice is that there's, a, there's one word, there's one concept, but it's very different. I mean, I love a raisin cake. I, you know, for, for, I know this makes you a little bit worried. Like, what's God against raisin cakes? Come on. You know, fruit bed, bread is one thing, but raisin cakes. I mean, who doesn't like a good raisin scone once in a while? Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with raisin cakes. By the way, raisin cakes were associated with worship, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. And the, and the, and the point is, God said, I've, I'm reducing all of your idolatry to this, this little thing, a raisin cake. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, how much are you willing to give for a raisin cake? But the thing is, when you say, I like a raisin cake, what you're saying is, I like what it does for me. Right? That's what C.S. Lewis will call need love. I like how it makes me feel. I like the taste. I like the texture. I like the carbohydrate boost, whatever. That's need love. It meets my need. On the other hand, God's love here is this love that C.S. Lewis calls gift love. And God doesn't love you to meet his needs. He loves you to meet your needs. He loves you because he wants to give of his abundance to satisfy and fulfill and to make you whole. It's need love versus gift love. So what is love really like? Well, if we want to get a picture of how God loves us, we look at what Hosea does here. There are four things. There are four attributes to God's love. And I just very quickly want to tell you the, the words. God's love is committed, gracious, costly, and restorative. It's committed. When God says to Hosea, go love, I initially say, well, how could you just command somebody to love someone, right? Wouldn't, isn't that like an emotional experience? Not this kind of gift love. It's a, a matter of the will. If it can be commanded, then it's just something you do out of your will, and emotions follow. And, 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 and he says, go love. I mean, you can do that. You can just make the decision to go love. And God has done that for us. He's just committed to love us, even when it's really hard to love us. He keeps loving you because it's a matter of his will. He's committed to loving you no matter what. It's gracious love. Because, of course, we look at the object of God's affection here, and God makes it very clear that she's to be an adulteress. She is a prostitute. You're loving somebody who's absolutely unworthy, who doesn't have any claim 
on your love, who in no way deserves to be loved. It's not lovable in, in the way that she's living her life. And that's the way God's love is for us. It's gracious. He doesn't ask you about your report card. He doesn't ask you, are you helping folks across the street? He doesn't ask you, have you been good, better than you've been bad? That's not what it's about. It's a gracious love that loves us even when we're absolutely unworthy. And then the third thing I say is it's a costly love. Do you notice that apparently uh, Gomer is uh, with a man who's abusing her and uh, is not going to let her go quite so easily because of his need love. He's invested in this woman. He's taking advantage. He's taking her for all she's worth into his life. And so when Hosea comes and knocks on the door and says, I'd like my wife back, he's not about to give her up. So there's this transactional negotiation that happens. (laughs) We kind of get the impression that it was a little bit expensive to get Gomer back. All of this silver plus barley plus wine. It's like he doesn't have enough silver in order to complete the transaction. There's some kind of implied negotiation. Well, what else do you got? Well, I got, I've got this barley. Okay, give me all the barley. What else do you got? Well, I've got this wine. He's got to pick this guy clean. See, it's costly love. He's given everything he's got to love you. It's not cheap love. God gives his one and only son for me. And for you, I mean, that's, that's, that's costly love. And then the fourth thing is it's restorative. And you read this, this thing and you say, you, you know, he says, you'll come, into, you, you'll come into my house, Hosea says to her, and live with me. That's what the Hebrew says. But, but we're not going to be sexually intimate uh, for a period. The same kind of language is used of a season of um, consecration after childbirth in Leviticus, 33 days. Um, there'll be a season here where we'll get some distance between you and your past because you have forgotten what gift love is and uh, that needs to be restored in you. So I'm I'm inviting you into this home not for my sake to take advantage of you like all these other so-called lovers have, but for your sake. So there's this period of abstinence in the relationship for the benefit of, of Gomer to restore her, to restore her, to restore their marriage, to restore their home life, these three children. This is what God's love can do in us as well. This is why he said, turn. Turn from those things that have abused you. Come into my way. Not because I need something from you, but because I want to restore you. I want to make you whole. When my friend was uh, talking about his wife, and I thought, you know what? I'm thinking this is need love. It sounds like it. He's, he's like, she has a responsibility to be a good wife. I'm going, I'm feeling uncomfortable with this. And, and he went to, he didn't have enough money for a lawyer, but he was, going to the, he was going to the library to read all about his rights at this point in their marriage. He wasn't going to grant her a divorce. And I thought, you know, and I said to him, I said, well, Jay, the, th- the, question, the only question you have right now is to ask is, what does it look like for me to love her right now? And, and maybe the best way you can love her is give her some space, right? Give her some gift love. It might do nothing for you. Now, how could a relationship get to that place where that becomes so hard? Just very quickly, I want to call to your attention that I think in America, the way we get into marriages is very challenging. It's called dating. And you might wish that we did arrange marriages because the dating uh, scene can be so challenging. And it, and it is so different. Successful dating is so different from what successful marriage is all about. Because successful dating is transactional. It's based on need love. If, if I'm attracted to you, if you're attracted to me, 
then we agree that, well, the benefits exceed the costs. And as long as the benefits exceed the costs, then we'll stay together for a while, right? And, and so we're constantly negotiating. Am I getting what I need? Is she getting what she's need, needing? Or is this costing too much for me? And, and so we get really good at, at that cost-benefit analysis, which is the refinement of need love. But I'll tell you, marriage lives or dies on the basis of gift love. And at some point, nothing wrong with need love, but it needs to, to mature into gift love at some point in your marriage. And that's true of any friendship, uh, by the way. And so, and, and so uh, we have a lot of work to do as we transition into marriage and try to reflect God's love for our, our spouses. Some of us, by the way, date God. We bring that same transactional economy into our relationship with God. And we say, God, prove me that you're relevant Prove to me that you've got something that's worthy of my time. Uh, I'll hang out with you for a little while as long as you promise to give me more than I have to give you. We said, be careful. We're dating God. We've missed the fact that it's all about his gift love for us. So the nature of love. uh, And then finally, uh, before I just a moment to reflect on that, what kind of love is at work in my life? You might think about the love that you've experienced from others or are experiencing for those and the love you try to show to others. What, what, what's, is it gift love, need love, some mixture of the two? And what would it look like for God to begin to shift the model for me? All right, finally, let's just jump in to the passion of love. <clears throat> and here the question is, essentially, is it safe? Is it safe to find myself in a loving relationship? Do I dare give somebody power over me? As we do when we allow somebody to love us. I want to suggest to you that in, in God's case, it's absolutely safe. In verse 5, we see a paradigm shift. At this point in verse 5, Israel comes running to God. Afterwards, the Israelites shall return. This describes a period after the exile. In verse 4 is a description of the decaying infrastructure of the Israelites as they find themselves in captivity to their lovers who, who have ultimately failed them. Afterward, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, David's been dead for over 200 years. But now Hosea is asked to look into the future and see the Israelites coming streaming back to God. And at the center of that, there's this figure, David, or the son of David. This is Jesus. They come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness. They come completely, voluntarily, and freely, not compelled by his power, in awe. And I want to say, what would inspire awe? What would surprise and amaze them? What would disclose so much goodness that they would want this relationship restored? And the answer is God's vulnerable love. God does not love us from security, a place of power. God is in this story, Hosea, who loves vulnerably, who allows his beloved to hurt him, to betray him. To destroy him. And if you moms or dads are sending a kid off to school this week, you realize your heart goes with them. And there's somebody out there in the world that has the capacity to increase your joy or to destroy your, your, your heart. 
And that's just because you love them, because you took the risk to be vulnerable and love that person in the world. Now they run around, they do all these things, and they have no idea the power they have over your life. And that's exactly what's going on here. God is looking through the windows of heaven at you and saying, when she's happy, I I can't contain my joy. And when she's hurting, it breaks my heart, it destroys me. And this is what we see on the cross. This is the passion of God. That's why we call it the death of Jesus, the passion. It's the emotion of God. It's what God feels for you and for creation, that he would give his life, that he would make himself so vulnerable, he would allow his enemies, his betrayers, to to rob him for all he's, he's worth, to take his life away. By the way, there's a charge in uh, the book of Job, this is the treatise of, of the book of Job, that God's love isn't really free. That's what Satan says to God. You know, Job, he doesn't really love you. He doesn't really experience your love. He doesn't know anything about love. It's all about fear. He just does what you say uh, to do in order, because he thinks you'll give him something good or you'll take some, something good away from him. That's what the book of Job is all about. And at the end, where we realize is, no, actually, Job loves God. And he's sort of forgotten that during the grand debate. This is, a, this is an act, a, a, a drama, a play. And at the end, it's like the curtain is torn back and we see God. Job sees God as he really is. And when Job sees that God loves the way he loves, it, it reframes everything. He says, oh my gosh, when I saw your goodness, when I saw your vulnerable love, it changed everything. And I have days that's like that. When I just a few minutes of prayer looking at God's grace through the cross of Jesus Christ can reframe the whole day. That's the passion because it draws us to God. And I think that's what rekindles love uh, in our relationship with him and our relationship with one another. So, your primary task is to be perfectly loved. Your primary task is to be perfectly loved. And mine too. Let's accept no substitutes. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, Um, Thank you for the good news that you love rebels, that you run towards those who run after you. But finally, that you do not compel them in. You, You draw us in with the incredible, sacrificial, and vulnerable love that you've given us in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. And we just pray that the good news of our forgiveness, the good news of our freedom, the good news that we don't have to prove anything to you to be loved, that we will be loved from this day forth for all of eternity as we place our trust in Jesus Christ. We can know that reality. We pray that you'll help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.